welcome to the DLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we talked to Jeffrey Pollard, Assistant Professor at the University of San Francisco and Curator of the Weekly News Bulletin, This Week in Africa. We will discuss African politics and sustainable urban development. Jeffrey recently published a book called Democracy in Ghana, Everyday Politics in Urban Africa. You can find more information about Jeffrey and his research in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Lust. We hope you enjoyed the episode. So Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited for this. I wanted to just start out by thinking a little bit about why we might study urban politics separately from rural politics. I think you make a case in your book about why we want to think differently about urban politics and also why it's so important in Africa when we have a very kind of a rapidly urbanizing country or a rapidly urbanizing continent. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about why we should think differently about urban areas. Yeah. So um, as as you just mentioned, uh, the continent is urbanizing rapidly. People are moving to the cities and areas that were historically rural are growing fast and becoming cities. So it's really changing the landscape of the continent. And uh, we've often thought about Africa through a rural lens. So when we think about development, we're thinking about agriculture and how to kind of, you know, spur green revolutions or other kind of tactics. When we think about politics, we think about, you know, rural homelands where people have a connection to the place and, you know, their ethnic identity is what shapes their vote choice and other, you know, decisions in their life. And what we're seeing is that those things are still important and those things are still true. But as people move to the cities, the politics are really changing and people are moving into spaces and it's really changing how they think about their membership in a political community. It's shaping how they think about ethnic identity. It's changing how they think about development. And from a very just kind of simple standpoint, poverty looks different in cities. The way people mobilize and how politicians connect with their voters is very different in cities because people have many different kind of competing, conflicting identities. And I think from just a very basic standpoint, we know very little about these places. So we have all these kind of theories that come from the West, you know, modernization theory and political economy theories that suggest that there's going to be this rapid change in political development. But these theories haven't really been tested or examined uh, in the African context. And I found that in order to really understand what's going on in African cities, you have to go to the very neighborhoods where people live. And you actually sort of take us in, in kind of in a really great way in terms of making us feel like we are actually in these neighborhoods and, and you've done some really nice ethnographic research in here. And you give us a, a really good sense of how neighborhoods might differ and might vary within a city. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you see this relationship between identity and space and community as affecting some of the outcomes that you've talked about in terms of the political outcomes? Yeah, so I, I was surprised that I'd find that the politics of belonging was still so important in cities. And what I mean by this is the way that people feel connected 
to space really differed across different neighborhoods. So in the book, I outline a, a sort of typology that thinks about these neighborhoods as indigenous neighborhoods, areas where the population claims kind of first settler status. They were there first. And I think this uh, idea kind of transfers to many different settings. In Francophone Africa, they use the term autochthon. Uh, in South Asia, the term sons of the soil. But there's a similar dynamic in many of these neighborhoods. Um, but then there's a long history of migration in many of these cities as well. And there's what are called stranger communities. In West Africa, we call these Zongo communities, where early settler kind of laid claim to a land. And over time, people moved and kind of created a community, but also made ties to the people who were living there uh, previously. And then in this new environment, as governments are unable to kind of provide the infrastructure that is needed as people move in, there's growing squatter settlements. Um, and I see that in these different kind of patterns uh, or these different types of neighborhoods, you see a different type of identity politics emerge. You see a different type of distributional politics and you see a different leadership structure. Maybe you can start a little bit with the latter point, which is this question about leadership structures and, and especially you call them opinion leaders, which I also really like, at least in some of the cases that we have opinion leaders, um, instead of using the word sort of clients and patrons and, and brokers. So I think maybe to sort of bring us into thinking about some of these other distributional aspects, can we start by thinking about what types of leaders we have in these different communities? Yeah, I think actually that's um, one of the most important things is to kind of throw away all our theories from the political science literature, still like have it in mind that that's what we want to study eventually. But when we go into these places, instead of thinking about leaders as just initially corrupt or patron brokers, you know, this is a term, no one on the ground is using the term broker or intermediary, even though that might be useful for us. But people are thinking about these people who are connected to political parties as regular people, but also as leaders in their communities. And they use the term opinion leaders. So this is something that um, I use from them. But these opinion leaders are in some communities, these are people who are important members of a royal family in the ethnic community. Uh, in Muslim communities, these are often imams or people connected to Islam. In uh, the squatter settlements, these are people who are landlords and even scrap dealers, people who have accumulated wealth through the informal recycling practices. And once you start seeing how people think about these leaders, you realize that uh, these leaders wear many hats. They, at one point, they may be a religious leader. At another point, they may be working for the party. At another point, they might be a, a fetish priest for their, you know, ethnic community. And it's important to understand, at least I think it is, that they wear all these hats and the political part of their identity is just part of it. You know, they'll operationalize that when they need it. Friday night, they may operationalize their uh, importance in the community. At another point, they might, you know, kind of operationalize another identity, their identity as an entrepreneur or as an NGO leader. Um, so what I try to do in this book is show how all of those kind of overlap and intersect because uh, it really is the interaction between those different categories that, you know, help them gain a following, so to speak. 
I also think it's great because you draw into question the ways in which many of our theories, particularly theories of clientelism, really focus on electoral moments, right? I mean, everything that happens afterwards is because of, you know, either the past election or the next election. It's effectively kind of all centered around elections as being the relationship between they want to save as brokers and, and, you know, citizens and patrons, right? And, and I think you kind of open that space and say, you know, there's a lot of things that go on, right? And not everything that takes place after an election is all about preparing for the next election or, or sort of, or rewarding for the past one. And I, I think that's a really, really important way for us to, to kind of rethink some of the, some of the frameworks that we use. And like you said, it's not that we throw those out, right? It's just that we kind of nuance them and think a lot more about what politics really means for the people on the ground, right? No, I, and I was going to say to that point, what I found is that it's for a lot of, you know, ordinary people, politics is about recognition and respect. So, of course, delivering the goods and, you know, becoming part of a political party is brings material rewards, but it also brings this kind of recognition that you matter as a human being. Um, that's what I'm trying to do, you know, to push uh, how we understand clientelism. I also thought you do a nice job of reinserting power relations, quite honestly. I mean, a lot of times, for some reason, when politics is effectively supposed to be about this, you know, in political science is about the study of the use of power, um, a lot of times that is almost sort of been shoved aside and we haven't seen as much of a real interest about thinking about what is the basis of power and you bring in legitimacy and some of these things that, that I think have been often sidelined in some of the more uh, kind of institutional analyses and, and some of the more recent work. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that, you know, that reinsertion of power into the equation, right? And then the, the differentiation of it. So you talk a lot about how the leaders in indigenous communities or the settlement or the, or the squatter settlements actually not only differ, but they differ in terms of what their own aspirations are and how that makes them relate to those around them. Um, and also then the ways in which they might use something like ethnicity as a tool to try to achieve their aspirations. Yeah. So uh, one of the stories uh, that I tell in this book with respect to the squatter settlement is that there's all sorts of leaders who are trying to gain power in this community. But squatter settlements, in a lot of ways, at least the one I worked in Old Fadama, is still seen by the government as a temporary place. And while people are living there for, you know, more than 10 years, more than 15 years, it's still not recognized formally. And uh, it's only slowly becoming a part of Accra as a city. So what this means for leaders, um, politicians, is that they're still trying to gain following, you know, people who support them. But they're almost building this following so that they can run for office back home. And a lot of this means for a lot of these people back in the north. So there's this example of a local counselor who's won his election. People are very excited that he's going to help bring uh, electricity and toilets and really uh, build up the community. But after he wins that election, his phone turns off. And, you, you know, you, you might think that, okay, this is the end of him. But, you know, what he's doing is becoming closer to those in power in the capital city in Accra, getting close to the party. And then six months later, he actually runs for a member of parliament up in his northern district. So every, you know, all the close ties that he makes in the squatter settlement, he uses to kind of build a following that he can then kind of redistribute and, and win power 
back home. And this is just one example. And he actually won that election. So what this suggests is that he's uh, he's restricting his following to uh, a group of people who are going to then vote somewhere else. And uh, this, you know, because it's in a rural area, it's also people of the same ethnic group. So ethnic identity plays an important role. But, uh, you know, what I'm very clear about in the book that that's not what's happening all across the city. In fact, in stranger settlements, uh, leaders, they move to the city, but they're they, they create these close linkages to the customary landowners. So they're seen as, you know, legitimate in the city. They, they're allowed to stay in that city and they're meant to be there, so to speak. And while this might not be formalized with a land title, it's definitely kind of formally recognized by the government. And I think there's an important distinction there. But these leaders, to gain power, they have to actually help the community there. So they have to take care of their public toilets that they operate. They have to clean out the sewers that get dirty on a daily basis. And mind you, this is all kind of informal activity. The government's not doing much to help upgrade these communities. But there's this great quote during an interview that I had with one of these leaders. I, I looked at him and there was a whole bunch of streetlights just sitting next to him. And I said, oh, you know, why do you have streetlights there? And he's like, oh, those are the streetlights for the block. And I said, oh, did they come from the municipal assembly? He's like, oh, no, 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 no. I had to buy those myself. And I said, oh, why would you purchase those yourself? Like, that's something that taxes should pay for and they should be delivered by the municipal assembly. He's like, the municipal assembly is not doing it. And if I don't buy them myself, I'm going to have a line of people out the door all night and I won't be able to sleep. So it was in his own interest to buy them themselves, put them up. And that also brought him legitimacy and power in the community. So one of the things I try to do in this book is think through really creative policy solutions and, you know, solutions to improve accountability that actually might matter, like something as simple as making sure that the leader lives in the actual community. It's also interesting that in a very different part of the world, but in Morocco for a while, the Pidja Day was, was known for making sure that its, its MPs actually had to go back and spend time in their in their constituencies, mm. right? Yeah, it's that same notion of making sure that people have a have a sense and a connection to place, which sometimes gets lost. Mm. And you, know, I think, also gives some some great examples and some thinking about how in the indigenous communities the relationship then between the leaders and ethnicity and sort of the salience of ethnicity um, might be both mobilized but also different than what we see, for example, in, say, the, the kind of the stranger communities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think ethnicity tends to be one of these things that people, again, kind of flatten and just assume that it's always important and equally important. Yeah, you know, ethnicity still is very important in, you know, West Africa and Accra. Uh, there's another new book by Noah Nathan that really finds that, you know, ethnic identity still really matters. But what I found is, yes, ethnic identity matters, but it's part of this process of, you know, understanding why it matters. And I think in indigenous communities and, and in a lot of these cities, it's about, you know, access to land tenure. Uh, many of these places are still governed by customary ownership. And what's happening is these cities are growing really fast and there's a lot of revenue potential, especially with development, construction, and the like. So, you know, being tied to the, the indigenous families can bring you a lot of profit. But in, in in certain neighborhoods, there's still a long tradition of we've been here since the 1500s, and that still really matters to us. It's like the historical center. So the area that I'm working, 
you know, the Jamestown Usher Town is the British and Dutch name, but locals call it Gamashi, and it's kind of the historical center. It's a very vibrant space, and the members of parliament have to be parts of important political families. They have to be connected to the long lines of the kings and the uh, priests and the, the people who govern them for, for long. But that doesn't mean that the NDC and the MPP don't make inroads in quite the, the opposite. There's these overlaps. So there will be a fetish priest who represents the NDC party. And you have this interesting kind of interaction between the informal and formal institutions. But I think the point to be made, and I see this across Africa is that a lot of these communities, as more and more migrants move into the city, they get outnumbered mm-hmm. and their power is under threat. And people really do see this in the same way that people saw in the southern United States when blacks really gained the right to vote. Um, and you have this famous theory come out in 1949, you know, the racial threat hypothesis. Well, you see similar uh, kind of fears that uh, migrants are going to take over the city. And the ways that indigenous communities respond to that threat is quite interesting. And you see lots of strategies around boundary creation districts. But at the very local level, these identities still really mean a lot to people. They still see their neighborhood as a territory and a space. So during elections, they want to protect that space. It almost takes on a military-like atmosphere or like a so-called almost a war-like language that really uh, ties back to the same war calls that happened when the Ashantis were coming down in 1826. Uh, you see kind of, you know, building on this language. So you know, I don't think we should reduce it to just tradition and values. It's used in a new way, and we shouldn't overlook that. But it also doesn't disappear, right? It's that combination. It, yeah, it doesn't disappear, and it, you know, these networks are very powerful. And it, it still really matters to people. And it's something that whether you want to deal with it or not as a policymaker, or as a as a politician, this is what still governs these spaces. And these spaces are still, you know, some of the most important areas of Accra. And other cities have uh, this issue as well. I mean, we see this in Lagos. We see this in Cameroon, see this across the continent. You talk a lot, lot too, about the types of the goods that get provided, the types of services that get provided. And I think that's another place that just as a discipline that and you know, set of scholars that we're thinking a lot about is what are the, sort of the different types of business cycles or the different, different types of business logics for different, different public goods. Can you tell us a little bit, because you, you're looking at how those logics might intersect with the nature of different communities. So if you can explain a little bit about how those matter differently. Yeah. So um, in some ways, I just take a very simple collective action framework borrowed from, you know, Eleanor Ostrom. But I try to understand why certain populations might think about state resources as public and common, uh, whereas in other places, you know, leaders and populations might think of them as private or club. And I, I find that, you know, in these different settlement types, uh, they do think about the distribution of state goods in different ways. So in squatter settlements, for, for various reasons, uh, populations still are demanding state resources. They're still demanding their so-called democratic dividend. But there's not this understanding that these goods are going to help everyone. It, it's not an expectation. It, it really is seen as private. It's like if you are strong enough and loud enough and 
connected enough, you can still get state goods, but you're going to have that ability to capture this. And I think what's important is that this is actually how everyone understands it. It's not something that, you know, people are like, oh, that's for everyone. There's not this understanding that the public toilets are really public. I mean, they're meant to be a business. That's just an understanding in these places. Whereas in indigenous communities where we were just talking about, there's this idea that the, the people who kind of can gain access to these goods are people of the indigenous community. And, you know, people from the outside don't really question this either. You know, this is Gamachi. It's a traditional center. You know, why would I, as a migrant who came here 10 years ago, be able to control space in this area? So there really is this idea that this is restricted to club lines. And then in stranger settlements, there's this understanding that many different groups of people need to come together to demand goods from the state. And they're seen more either as common, kind of outside state purview, or public, where everyone is really unrestricted from gaining these goods. And, you know, I think there is potential to kind of move into the stranger community environment. Like, I, I do think neighborhoods can change and they're not deterministic. And this idea of how to get everyone to think about goods in a certain way, to me, is one about the space itself how people make claims to urban space, how they think about urban space. And this kind of gets back to your initial question about, you know, what's different in cities is that urban space is different from rural spaces in that there's all these overlapping power dynamics, overlapping identities, where as in rural areas, there might be a, just a clear overlap between, okay, the religious figures, the ethnic identity, and the political party. They're all on the same team. They're all the same people. Whereas in urban space, you have all these competing jurisdictions. You make some interesting observations, too, about things like NGOs and how we might think of associations and their relations with politics and with other sort of forms of authority and, and mobilization as well. I think is part of that same notion about kind of overlapping and sometimes competing and sometimes congruent power bases. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the just clearest takeaway points on that is everything is political. NGOs play a part of this story, but they're they're viewed as political actors, whether they really want to be or not. And I, I tell stories about this. Some of the NGO leaders or organizations might see this as, no, we're just gaining international financing. We're trying to help everyone out. Well, that might be true. I'm not questioning that. But at the local level, people see something different. And as an ethnographer, it became very aware. I mean, even my presence became political in a way. I mean, people see me walking around with certain people. So I definitely had to be very careful about my positionality because, like I said, everything really is political and about power dynamics. I'm curious as to, you talk about it in terms of identity and a sense of belonging, but not really in terms of citizenship. And I was just curious as to why or what you see as that distinction. Yeah, I, I do think this is about rights and citizenship, big picture. I think the way that people are making claims to space is the easiest way for them to make a case that they are members of Ghana's democracy. And this is how they view Ghana's democracy. Um, I think the recognition and respect that I mentioned with clientelism is really not just about being recognized by your leader, but being seen as a citizen of Ghana. But there's certainly more work to be done on that. And I don't 
think that people are seeing themselves as members of like an ethnic community. I don't think they're seeing themselves as like ethnic citizens, so to speak. There's this national identity. Maybe this is a Ghana thing. Like people are very proud and nationalistic when it comes to, you know, being a Ghanaian citizen. And I think maybe like big picture, that's one reason why Ghana works as a, as a democracy and is peaceful and stable. But one place where I think it differs from the urban scholarship that I read a lot of is this sense of urban citizenship, this sense that like who has a right to the city. And I'm starting to do more work on that. And I think a lot of people who live in squatter settlements and even stranger settlements struggle with this idea of like, do we really have a right to this city? Because there's this power kind of indigenous conception of like the city is ours. And I think that's just going to take some time. It's very different from cities in South Africa, cities in Latin America, other places where there's really this like clear idea that we have a right to the city. And NGOs are trying to kind of build this idea like, oh, it's your human right to belong here. But that's actually taking some time. What are the lessons in addition that, that we should take away from this with regards to democracy or how we should think about democracy? I think one of the most important things to think about is that for, for Ghanaians, there's an important aspect of deliberation that is important for democracy. So listening to citizens and actually giving people the chance to explain themselves is something that's very important. And this goes at the very high level when we're talking about the political parties. So yesterday, you know, I heard two of the leading forces of the NDC and the NPP kind of talking about their manifesto. And the NDC said, you know, one of the mistakes we made in 2016 was we just came out with a list of all of our achievements, but we did not listen to what people actually wanted enough. So in 2020, we're taking a different approach. So there's the mobilization aspect in trying to win elections, but there's also giving people the chance to kind of air their grievances, giving leaders the chance to explain why they might not have been able to get a project done. So I think it really goes both ways. And I've called this, labeled this in other work, dignified public expression. But I think it's a central part of democracy, uh, I would say across Africa, but certainly in Ghana. And the, the kind of second point to this, which is a little different from other settings across the world, is that they expect some face-to-face connection with their leaders. And this comes out time and again on the Afrobarometer surveys. And it's always different than other public opinion surveys. Like, I don't expect to see my senator or my congressman face to face, but in Africa, there's still that expectation. So no use saying, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Should these people just be making laws? I mean, maybe, but it's an, it's an expectation. And I actually do think that it improves the quality of democracy in Ghana, at least according to my story. I guess I've always wondered, do do those who are not indigenous to the area, in a sense, both do they see democracy kind of in its fullest sense, not necessarily just with regards to, say, MPs, but in its fullest sense in terms of having a say over and an input into your life and, and the local community? And do they even see citizenship in the same way? No, I, I think they struggle to see it in the same way. I think they feel excluded, but you know, this is where I think formal politics still matter. I mean, people are moving in at such a large rate. So even these indigenous spaces are becoming much more diverse and politicians are being forced to cater to these voters just to win elections. So there's a formal story here and the power of public expression and discussion and talk happens through that mobilization process, happens through 
these discussions of how can we win over these populations and they're kind of forced into these coalitions. I think it takes time. I think, you know, there's some parallels between squatter settlements today and stranger settlements in the 1940s and 1950s. So part of the story might be a, a temporal story. So I think they need to work it out. There is a bargaining process between these different leaders and you're starting to see it. I mean, when I would go to rallies in churches, most of the discussion was in the Ga language, but they would invite all the Muslim leaders from the nearby squatter settlement. And it was unclear whether, you know, how real or true or how open they really wanted to be, but the process was starting to happen. And I think with more youthful populations, you're seeing a change too. A lot of the young so-called foot soldiers, I see them as local youth who are during elections working for the parties, but, you know, they're talking across boundaries. They're talking the same languages. And, you know, they're breaking down the power of just speaking uh, those types of things. I, I think we'll see. Yeah, exactly. And it's dynamic, which I think is, a, is yeah. a very important point to keep in mind. So what do you see as the most important policy-related and observations or um, findings that you've learned? Yeah, so um, from a democracy perspective, I, I think accountability and transparency is key. But I think it's more than, uh, you know, there, we have to be creative about how we're thinking about accountability and transparency. So where I saw really play out is the importance of leaders kind of living in their communities, being accessible uh, to their followers. In terms of transparency, I think the ways that political parties are spending their money is something and the way that kind of public financing works uh, requires a lot more work. And we just don't really know. I mean, it, it seems like every contract, certain amounts of money is just goes in the hands of certain figures. And that's just, you know, how things work. But uh, if we had a better understanding of kind of contract provision, um, the political parties are so well organized and they have the best data, but it's not public. So learning about how they're doing it and, you know, why they're operating. I mean, I always joke that you're probably going to get better demographic data from the political parties. Now, Ghana census is quite good, but they have bank accounts for their followers and people get money just kind of randomly throughout the process. And it's a really interesting story. But I think transparency and accountability at you know the very local level uh, is really important. From an urban standpoint, you know, there's a lot written about a city without slums and how we have to, you know, kind of get rid of slums and upgrade. And what, what I find is that slums are some of the most vibrant spaces of democratic activity. Slums are where we see political change happening. It's where we see unique mobilization strategies. It's where we see people creating new identities beyond ethnicity and belonging and other sorts of things. So I would kind of flip that on its head and say, how can we make slums better but keep their democratic spaces in a lot of ways, not fully, but, uh, it, you know, so I think that just is really important. So we need to find creative ways to improve these spaces. And I think it has to do more with kind of infrastructure upgrades at a very small scale to kind of win over the minds and kind of trust of local slum dwellers and business leaders. So I would say those are kind of two major things to think about. Thank you. Now, this is, like I said, it's fabulous work. It's really, really fascinating, and, I've, and I enjoyed it. What are you working on next? What should we be expecting? Yeah, so I'm uh, starting this big project that looks at the contentious politics 
of urbanization on a continent-wide scale. So I'm interested in trying to um, understand, you know, why certain cities experienced more forced evictions, have different patterns of public goods provision than others, and really just kind of untangle I, a very basic question, like how can we compare cities across mm -hmm. Africa? So we have lots of great kind of ethnographic work, lots of great case studies of different cities, but we have very little comparative work on African cities. So I'm, you know, comparing a few of these cities myself, like with different kind of historical uh, work, survey work, you know, cities like Lagos and Accra, Kampala, but I'm trying to um, also think about cities all across the continent. So I'm, I'm, I've just started that. I've had a few pieces, just kind of general framework about that kind of outline the work, but I'm, I'm quite excited about it. Excellent. Now we'll look forward to that really, really well. So, great. Again, thank you for joining us. It's great to, really great to see you and great to talk to you. So, Well, thank you so much. It was really fun to do this and you guys are doing such great work uh, at GLD and I, I always follow it closely and it, it informs my work very much. So thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.